Welcome to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden, primary care physician and acute care hospitalist at Hennepin Healthcare in downtown Minneapolis, where we cover the latest in health, healthcare, and what matters to you. And now here's our host, Dr. David Hilden. Hey, it's Dr. David Hilden, and welcome to episode 15 of the Healthy Matters Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about sleep apnea. You've probably heard about it, but we're going to delve into what causes it and what you can do about it. And to help me out, I have invited a past guest from the program, Dr. Renji Verghese. He is a sleep doctor who specializes in all kinds of sleep disorders, including sleep apnea. Dr. Verghese, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you, Renji. Now, you do all kinds of sleep, but we're going to stick to sleep apnea today because it's so common and so many people are living with sleep apnea. So start us off. What is it? What is sleep apnea? Yeah, so sleep apnea, as you mentioned, it's very common. It's a condition where the back of the throat, the tongue, the muscles in the back of the throat, when we sleep at night, become very relaxed. And at that time, the airway might close off because our muscles are relaxed when we fall asleep. And if the airway closes off, the oxygen can't get into your lungs, and this is what we call a sleep apnea event. It's essentially a choking episode when we sleep at night. It sounds awful. Terrible, it is. I mean, when you describe it as a choking episode and not getting oxygen, that sounds pretty bad. What causes it? So a lot of different things cause sleep apnea, but the number one thing is being a male and obesity. So being overweight can cause a lot of weight around the size of your neck, and so that puts a lot of pressure on those soft tissues in the back of the throat. So anything that might put pressure on the throat, like obesity, sleeping on your back, because if you sleep on your back, your tongue can sort of roll back and choke that uh, airway as well. But mostly it's being a male, mostly it's obesity, and certain things like alcohol can worsen sleep apnea as well. Does the word apnea mean, is that what it means, choking? Yeah, it means stopping breathing, essentially. It's the cessation of breath. So you said it's more common in men. What about in age? Does it Do people get it at young ages, or is this a disease of, of aging? Absolutely. I mean, we do definitely see this in adult males. Um, when we look at the pediatric literature, it's these kids that have tonsils, very large tonsils or adenoids that can snore very loud and have sleep apnea as well. But we're really starting to see not just kiddos having obstructive sleep apnea from tonsils, but there's a big crisis in pediatrics with obesity. And these children are coming with sleep apnea that's not involved with tonsils. When it comes to women, women are fairly protected from having sleep apnea until they start hitting perimenopause and menopause, and then they start catching up to men. Why is that? Well, uh, the hormones, progesterone and estrogen, are, they help us breathe. They help women breathe. It also helps with keeping the airway open. So you talked about tonsils and adenoids. That, now, we don't take those out so much in kids anymore, but and when we did, they were just because they were a little big and people were getting sore throats, right? I mean, tonsillectomies weren't done for sleep apnea back in the day, were they? They were, and they are now. They are, fact, now. Okay. they are now. They are now. And and it depends on the severity of the sleep apnea for kiddos. So if their sleep is really disrupted and they're sleepy during the daytime and you can really identify using a sleep study that their sleep is disturbed, we then perform a tonsillectomy and that's usually curative for these kids. Okay. So how common is sleep apnea in our population? A study, a population-based study in 2014 looked at men and women. About 14% of men and about 5% of women have obstructive sleep apnea. And when we categorize sleep apnea, we think of mild, moderate, and severe obstructive sleep apnea. So these are folks that are stopping breathing or their oxygen is dipping a minimum of five times per hour. And that's where those numbers come from. 40% of men, 5% of women. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. It is. 
Is that a global phenomenon or is that more of a thing in our country, especially with obesity? That's the correlation is that we are – there's two components to that. I think it's the obesity epidemic, but then there's also a lot of doctors are now becoming very well aware of sleep apnea. And this has happened in the last 20 years. So we talk about it a lot in clinic. I do in primary care clinic a lot. Someone says, yeah, I think I have sleep apnea or my spouse snores and I think they have sleep apnea. Are we are we diagnosing it more formally with sleep studies like what you do, or are we diagnosing it more just in the clinic, uh, sort of speculatively? Like I think you have sleep apnea. It's on a lot of the radar of a lot of doctors, so yeah. I think they're just going to ask the right questions, and if they have the right suspicion for sleep apnea, the goal is for the patient to be tested or at least seen by a sleep physician to determine whether testing is indicated and to figure out whether they have sleep apnea. So I take it cases are on the rise then? I think so for a number of different reasons. The fact that people are aging, that's one reason. Number two, the fact that people are continuing to have uh, this obesity epidemic. And three, I think doctors, again, just like you, you're, it's on your radar. You want to ask about this because it's important. I mentioned snoring. I think you maybe did earlier in this in this uh, episode, with especially with kids. Kids. Tell us about, if you could, Renji, the, the correlation between snoring and sleep apnea. They're not one and the same, but they're, they go together, right? Absolutely. So you can have snoring, very loud snoring, and not have these episodes where the airway is closing off and you're choking yourself. But snoring tends to very strongly indicate that someone does have obstructive sleep apnea. So if you have someone that has obstructive sleep apnea, they likely have symptoms of snoring, loud snoring. But you can have snoring alone and not have sleep apnea. So if you think you might have sleep apnea or you think the person you share a bed with, you know, they snore, it's just really loud. How do you diagnose it? Yeah, so apart from that snoring question I asked, is the snoring loud enough to be able to be heard through a closed door? I asked the patient or their bed partner, does your partner ever snore themselves awake, like with a snort? <laughs> kind of like that. Ooh, that was good. <laughs> Reggie, that was good. Well, the reason why I do that is because when I do that in the clinic with a patient, they go, yes, that's exactly that's what I have. That's, that's it. That's it, yeah. And then, then I, I'm fairly certain that I've got the diagnosis. Or if a bed partner hears that they're snoring, and then all of a sudden there's a silence in the snoring, and then the patient has a snort awakening, that's what we call, that's a witnessed apnea. So apart from that, I ask questions like, do you wake up with a dry mouth in the morning? Do you have a headache when you wake up in the morning? Do you feel like you're sleepy during those days? All that sort of gives us an indication that uh, there's a high probability that someone has sleep apnea. You practically have to be a marriage counselor. If you can hear it through a closed door. Yeah, wow. I bet you have a lot of conversations with people. Well, there is something called sleep divorce where people separate from their bedrooms to sleep better because of their partner snoring or other sleep complaints. And and yeah, people do say, I'm sleeping better now because my partner's sleeping better. I think they did a study that looked at how much a bed partner's sleep is disturbed by someone else's snoring. And it's about 50% of their sleep can be disturbed by someone's sleep apnea and snoring. Right now, there are a whole lot of people nodding as they're listening to you say that. <laughs> right now, I can just imagine people listening to this episode, and they're going, uh-huh, that's my experience. I don't sleep well because the dude next to me here is snoring so loud. Absolutely. Yeah. Is sleep apnea dangerous? 
Yeah, great question. So as we talked about it, that you can have different severities of sleep apnea, mild, moderate, or severe. If it's really mild, we kind of just talk about lifestyle modifications, losing weight, maybe reducing alcohol before bedtime, uh, sleeping on the side, and things like that. But if it becomes moderate or severe, if the number of times that someone is holding their breath and stopping breathing is between 15 to 29 times an hour, we call that moderate obstructive sleep apnea. That's like once every minute or two. Yep, yep, exactly right. And if it's beyond that and or if their oxygen really tanks, you know, below 80%, you know, even in the mid-80s, we know that that left alone over time confers a risk of cardiovascular disease, sudden cardiac death, heart attacks from sleep, difficult to treat high blood pressure, and it's a whole host of things that can happen. So I don't want people to worry because the majority of folks that come into our doors, they've had sleep apnea for an extended period of time. So there's not a big risk that something's going to happen tonight. My recommendation would be, if you think you have it, come and see us. So let's talk about what the experience of someone who has sleep apnea is. What does it feel like and and what kind of symptoms do they have? The prototypical example of someone has, you know, symptomatic sleep apnea or severe sleep apnea, they'll come in tired. They'll come in sleepy. They'll feel really just sluggish. They'll feel they'll they'll say things like, not only can I sleep if I have the opportunity during the daytime, if give if you gave me the opportunity, but I just feel like I'm walking through a fog. And they'll say multiple times throughout the night, I'll wake up feeling like something is in the back of my throat, like my tongue, or I've just awakened and my heart is racing, and they don't sleep through the night. Um, So that's typically what people describe. Uh, You said there's different severities. Is it all caused by an obstruction or, or, you know, what makes one more severe than the other, I guess what I'm trying to say? There are different types of sleep apnea. The one that we normally see typically in in the population is obstructive sleep apnea. That word obstruction is a key that something is obstructing the airway like the tongue or the soft palate and, and so forth. There's something else called central sleep apnea. That's usually happens when someone's using a lot of opioid pain medications and there's, there's sometimes brain lesions can cause this or heart failure patients can also have central sleep apnea. Um, but really, the central sleep apneas we are concerned about, but rarely are they really associated with severe desaturations and we kind of just watch that. For the obstructive sleep apneas, we definitely want to get that fixed and treated because it can be uh, dangerous. Now, if you're not breathing once an hour, I can just imagine listeners are thinking, that's a lot. Yeah. I mean, is that considered a severe case and do they know that this is happening? Some people do, and that's why they will come in. Others are brought in by their spouse and say, you're doing this at night. And the patient says, I have no clue that I was doing this. This is news to me. I don't even believe it, to be honest with you. And part of the reason is, Dave, we're sleeping when this happens, right? We're sleeping, and then all of a sudden, there's this abrupt sort of arousal or disruption in our in our brain rhythms when we're sleeping. But it may not last long enough. Patients may not wake up long enough to remember that that occurred. So they forget that event, and then they just think that nothing has happened. Is it all night continuously? or Because and the reason I ask that is you and I, have, I've known you for years, and I've learned more about sleep from you than any other living human being. And I know that there's different cycles of sleep overnight. Does, does the apnea occur continuously through all sleep cycles, or does it wax and wane yeah. overnight? We cycle through two different stages of sleep, non-REM sleep and REM sleep. In REM sleep, it's very interesting because our muscles during REM sleep 
are paralyzed except for our breathing muscles and our eye muscles. That's why they call it rapid eye movements. Our eye muscles are moving and we can breathe, but the rest of our muscles, including our tongue, is way more relaxed than in non-REM. So in REM sleep, we tend to see sleep apnea becoming much more severe in terms of the frequency and even the oxygen desaturations. Renji, what would cause a person to wake up? Is it simply the severity of the obstruction or why don't they just, you know, pass out? Yeah, that's a great question. So sometimes the fact that the throat is actually obstructing can be irritating and someone will wake up. But the brain is really smart. It says, if I'm not getting oxygen, I need to do something different. And then there's a momentary awakening, the muscles constrict, and then the patient is able to breathe. It sounds like it's kind of an evolutionary necessity that you wake up and <laughs> otherwise we'd all be dead. Mother nature knows. Absolutely. Exactly. I've heard that certain foods can make it worse. You've mentioned alcohol. Anything else? You know, as I was mentioning a little bit earlier, the airway can be very sensitive to uh, collapsibility. But other things kind of make the airway or the soft tissue in the back throat swollen. So if we have things like GERD or reflux or spicy foods or anything that can irritate the back of the throat, like even smoking can make it really congested in the back of the throat, that's going to narrow the airway and it's going to make it more easy to collapse at night. So one more reason not to smoke. That's an easy one. But you're not going to tell me I can't like have a, a burrito or something now because it's spicy. Or good <laughs> Indian food. <laughs> you can have whatever you want, especially Indian food. <laughs> you know what? I'm ready for a nap. And I'm not even kidding. I can take a nap almost any time. Uh, so I'll take a short break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what can be done about sleep apnea. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden. Got a question or comment for the doc? Email us at healthymatters at hcmed.org or give us a call at 612-873-TALK. That's 612-873-8255. And now let's get back to more healthy conversation. And we're back with Dr. Renji Verghese talking about sleep apnea. You talked a little bit earlier about uh, things you ask patients about symptoms they might have. But when they get to you at the Minnesota Regional Sleep Disorder Center, how do you diagnose it officially? And say a little bit more about where you work. So the first thing that we do is we have the patient come in. Usually we like to have patients come in with their spouses or their bed partners to get some collateral information. We do a comprehensive physical examination and a just a history of how they're doing. Ask questions about how they're sleeping and how they're doing during the daytime. And if we think that they may have some obstructive sleep apnea, we'll do sleep studies. And nowadays we can do sleep studies at home. There's a little device that we wear on, on our wrist and, and we can get information from a patient's uh, sleep while they're at home. And then we also have a comprehensive sleep study where patients sleep in our lab. We put electrodes on their scalp, a couple of sensors near their mouth, nose, near their eyes, chest, and abdomen, and we just have them sleep through the night and figure out whether they have it. Can I just tell you that sounds awful? <laughs> what do you mean they're going to sleep through the night? Yeah, we put a sensor around your nose and your head. Now go to sleep. Really? Can people do it? People do. People do. And if they can't, if we have some concerns, and I do ask that question, I, I do give a sedative at night or a sleeping pill for those patients. They say, gosh, I, I really don't think I can do it. And, and that won't mess up our data. 
Our sleep center's been around for this year, Dave, 45 years. It was founded in 1978. It was one of the earliest sleep centers in the country. It was founded by Milton Enninger, one of the former chairs of neurology, and, and his protege, Dr. Mark Mahowald. I mean, it's historical sleep center. And um, just last week, we were honored by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine for being an accredited site for 40 years. Um, this center discovered REM sleep behavior disorder, which is considered by many as one of the most important neurological sleep disorders. Congratulations on that and to your predecessors. I, I knew uh, Dr. Mahawald well, and I even got to meet Dr. Edinger uh, a, a few years back. Truly, the Minnesota Regional Sleep Disorder Center is a pioneer in this field and continues to this day to not only care for patients but advance the science. It's located right here in downtown Minneapolis at Hennepin Healthcare. Okay, Renji, a lot of people wear fitness devices and Apple Watches and Fitbits and the like, and a lot of them will tell you how well you slept. Is that a valid measurement? Is that something that you think about when you're when you're helping people who aren't sleeping well? I, I do get this question a lot, and people do bring their devices, whether uh, it be wrist-worn or otherwise, and these devices are pretty good. Not perfect. They're not as close to a medical-grade device, but they can give us some parameters. They can give us an idea of how what time people might fall asleep and what time people might wake up. There's a good correlation of when people might stay in their REM sleep because there's virtually no movement during that time and there's changes in heart rate. So these algorithms are figuring that out. But they're not as good as picking up on sort of the depth of sleep that people are in. But these devices also have oximeters on them now, and those are getting to be fairly good, maybe close, but not nearly close to medical grade. To measure the oxygen in Absolutely. your blood, yeah. which is one of the primary problems. Absolutely, right? and patients bring that in, and I kind of go, well, this is worth inspecting, and we should maybe do an actual sleep study and figure this out. So you've alluded to what people can do in their lifestyle to help mild sleep apnea, avoid alcohol and things like that, um, You know, maybe sleep on your side. What treatments are available for people who need more? So again, if you're symptomatic, if you have risk factors for you know heart disease, strokes, blood pressure, we really want you to get treated. And the mainstay gold standard therapy has always been CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure, which is just essentially a box that blows room air that's humidified, uh, gentle air that sifts through a mass and keeps that airway pneumatically open. But that isn't the only treatment. We look at the data and about 50% of people that start CPAP after a year of use, when you look back into them, about 50% have stopped. So we know we need to have different alternatives, and we do. So we now have, and we have had for a long period of time, little retainers for your mouth. We call them mandibular advancement devices. And these things are custom molded by sleep dentists to move the lower jaw forward. And if you know, if you move the lower jaw forward, you're also moving the tissue, including the tongue forward. And so if we can put that in before someone sleeps, the jaws moved forward, the tongues moved forward, the airway is a little bit more open, and the sleep apnea is corrected. How far forward? Because I'm imagining somebody yeah. with a giant underbite all night long. <laughs> so it depends on when the snoring is dissipated. We might have someone come back in for another sleep study with these this device in place. And we do have to be careful because people can have joint issues by their cheeks called the temporal mandibular joint with some of these devices. But the devices are so slick nowadays, this is becoming a little bit more of the norm than sort of the exception. But we also have other treatments as well, surgical options and uh, some devices that are out there that actually move the tongue forward with a, a little vacuum seal. These get advertised a lot. Uh, they do. This surgical option um, is... Uh, 
a device that sits in your chest uh, and has a wire that is dug underneath your neck and it, it touches one of the nerves in our tongue. And at night, you turn this device on. And when this device figures out that you might have a sleep apnea event, it will stimulate the nerve, which stimulates the muscle of the tongue and moves the tongue forward. And you turn it off in the morning. Really good data that it works. You have to have failed a couple of different treatments to figure out whether this is an option for you. And it's only good for people that have not too severe sleep apnea and not over a certain BMI. I have to ask the question that's probably on a lot of people's mind. Is that safe? I mean, you're putting a wire up up onto your tongue? I'm going to guess it is safe, but it, I want you to comment on the it, safety it is, of it. It is F, it's approved by the FDA, so it is considered safe and efficacious. And it is generally safe. Um, it works, had, huh? it, 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 it does work. And, I mean, you know, nothing is foolproof. Nothing is, is ever without some side effects. And the most common side effects that people notice is that they may feel like their tongue is rubbing against their teeth. So, but well tolerated and really a helpful thing for people that can't tolerate other things. So let's go back to CPAP because that's what a lot of people are wearing. And I get patients all the time and family members, some of them swear by it. Oh, this is no biggie. And others say that was miserable. You probably deal with this all the time in your clinic. People who aren't loving their CPAP, what do you tell them? Or why is it that they're hard for some people? It can be a number of different things. One, sometimes people feel like the mask itself doesn't fit them well. And that's okay because there are different sizes, different types of masks that are out there. So we start with, is it the right mask? If it isn't, sometimes people say, it's too much pressure coming out of this tube and I want to, I want you to lower the pressure. And sometimes we do that so that they can get acclimated over time to be able to use a CPAP. But then other times, that's not going to work. And sometimes I bring them back into the lab and sometimes we transition them to a device called a BiPAP. And there's some literature that suggests that BiPAPs can feel more comfortable compared to a CPAP. Before I go on to sort of the future and some of the other newer things that are out there, what happens if if you simply leave this untreated? So you're, if you're sleepy because your sleep apnea is untreated, you have higher risk for not being as productive at work. Okay, fine. You are at higher risk for motor vehicle accidents. You're at higher risk for having an accident if you're operating you know, heavy machinery. Your mood might be disturbed. You might not think as clearly. But then let's start talking about all the cardiovascular outcomes. You, again, are higher risk for cardiovascular problems like coronary artery disease, strokes, sudden cardiac death, congestive heart failure, resistant hypertension. It's just wear and tear on the body. Lots of good reasons for getting your sleep apnea treated. Plus, you, know, you maybe won't go through a sleep divorce, too. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> maybe your bed partner won't kick you out of the house and put you behind three double doors. So what what other cool things are out there in the future? Is there some pill that's going to make it go away, or are there some other devices, or what are you seeing down the road? Again, yeah, this is interesting. We don't have a pill, but people are working with a combination of molecules that do keep the airway a little bit more stiff. That's really early, early device, but the preliminary results are that it kind of works, and it's usually good for people that have mild obstructive sleep apnea and not severe obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, there are techniques that you can use. Uh, you singers, have you ever heard of singers do something called circular breathing mm-hmm. or people that use the didgeridoo? There are muscle. No, I don't know that last word. You said the, witch. <laughs> the didgeridoo is a uh, an aboriginal instrument. It's an indigenous aboriginal instrument. It's a long tube that has this like a sound to it. And when you start to use your- I totally know what you mean. You've done it. (laughs) Um, 
when people use this instrument or use this circular breathing or just kind of engage in these breathing exercises, you can strengthen up the muscles of the back of the airway mm. that you can reduce mild sleep apnea. But this requires daily training, 30 minutes or so and even longer. But as you mentioned, are there other devices out there? Yes, there are devices that you can put on your tongue for 30 minutes a day that will stimulate the tongue muscles so the tongue muscles become stronger so that it you know reduces the sleep disorder breathing. You're joking. I'm There's a kidding. thing you put on your tongue. While you're awake and you just leave it in your tongue. When it's hanging out, it's battery operated and it will strengthen the muscles of the tongue and keep it a little bit less prone to collapse. It's battery operated and it strengthens the muscles of your tongue. I have never heard of that. Absolutely. Do people use that? Uh, I do not have any of my patients, but the folks that are at the VA have several patients that have gone through it and some love it and some feel like it's not the right thing for right. them. And I love that thing about the circular breathing thing. And a little side note, one time, I'll admit this, I went to a Kenny G concert one time. <laughs> I did, I did. He played a note that was like eight minutes long and he never took a breath. So yeah. he was playing and, and circular breathing. That's exactly right. I like your Aboriginal uh, sound effects better. You have a career in sound effects. Appreciate it, Dave. I can <laughs> what what would you leave us as we close it off here, Renji? Um, what would you like to tell people who are uh, maybe not sleeping well, who think they might have sleep apnea? What what would your closing tips be? If you're young, don't wait. Get it evaluated. Have someone sort of, if you're sleep, sleeping with someone, just have someone kind of keep an eye on you. There are apps actually that you can download that will measure snoring levels and even sort of estimate whether you have apnea as well. If, if that's not the case and you suspect that you're sleepy during the daytime, if you feel like you're not getting good quality sleep, if you're waking yourself from snoring, tell your doctor. Tell your doctor and they will likely refer them to a sleep physician and we'll get the ball rolling. I, I think the answer is it's so common, it's so easily diagnosable, and it's so treatable. And the, the gains are so big and the risks are too big that you might as well get the gains and not and, and avoid the risk. That's a great message to leave us with. There's so much to be done about this. Renji Verghese, thank you for being on the show with me today. I appreciate it, Dave. Thank you. We've been talking to Dr. Renji Verghese. He is a physician and a sleep specialist at the Minnesota Regional Sleep Disorder Center here in downtown Minneapolis and a colleague of mine and a frequent guest of mine whenever I can get some of his time to talk about his expertise. That's all we have for today. I hope you'll join us for our next episode when we're going to tackle the subject of Alzheimer's disease. It's going to be a great show. I hope you'll tune in. And in the meantime, be healthy and sleep well. Thanks for listening to the Healthy Matters Podcast with Dr. David Hilden. To find out more about the Healthy Matters Podcast or browse the archive, visit healthymatters.org. Got a question or a comment for the show? Email us at healthymatters at hcmed.org or call 612-873-TALK. There's also a link in the show notes. And finally, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and share the show with others. The Healthy Matters Podcast is made possible by Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and engineered and produced by John Lucas at Highball. Executive producers are Jonathan Comito and Christine Hill. Please remember, we can only give general medical advice during this program, and every case is unique. We urge you to consult with your physician if you have a more serious or pressing health concern. Until next time, be healthy and be well.